0: Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend,
1: Dr. Kurt Thompson. My friend, Pepper Sweeney.
0: Where we explore and discover what it means to be truly known. On today's podcast, we're going to get emotional. <laughs> this is what it's all about today, so just be prepared. Get your Kleenex boxes and whatever you're going to need to get through this uh, next 30 or 40 minutes as two men get emotional. <laughs> You
1: second that emotion, Kurt? I do. I second that emotion, Pep. Cue the music.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, with all the things that we've been talking about um, over the past few weeks, um, why does that lead us to emotion? How is emotion tied to all of these other things?
1: Well, you know, uh, Pep, I think um, one of the things that uh, has emerged over the course of, you know, probably uh, at least the last mm, probably two to four hundred years, is that we we we've kind of uh, imagined that the human person is divided into these different uh, that our mind is divided into these different sections, these different compartments, and that we've got a thinking compartment, and we have. Uh, a, a body compartment, and we have an emotional compartment, and that emotion is this separate thing altogether, and we think of it as this thing that we can either be or not be. Oh, he or she, they're being so emotional, as if it's this thing that I can choose to be or not to be, not to, you know, be all Shakespearean or whatever. Game. Right. Um, right. <clears throat> But one of the really interesting uh, developments over the last uh, 20 years in the field of neuroscience is the emerging awareness and discovery that emotion is not a secondary compartment. It's not this separated thing that is different from our cognition or that's different from our storytelling or different from what we sense. Instead, emotion is a feature that permeates every aspect of human experience. In the field of interpersonal neurobiology, we like to talk about emotion as the energy that around which the brain organizes itself. So all the energy, and quite literally, the energy that shows up in our neurobiochemistry, all that electrical chemical work that's going on in the brain and the central nervous system and throughout our body that represents and is reflective of what we typically call emotion now most people might wonder well gosh what does biochemistry have to do with feeling angry or feeling sad and frankly what does feeling angry or feeling sad have to do with what i think and you know whether or not um you know, I uh, decide to eat Wheaties or cornflakes for breakfast. What does that have to do with anything? We like to talk about emotion, though. I, I like to talk about emotion as like the gasoline in the tank of a car. In the sense that uh, there's nothing that we do it, once we get in our automobile. We, if you turn it on and you put it in gear, if you're going to speed up, slow down, make a turn go forward, go in reverse. There's nothing that we do in the car that is not a function of fuel regulation in some way, shape, or form. The engine is always wanting to know what's the next thing that we want to do to burn gasoline. A lot of it, a little bit of it. It's always permeating everything that's going on in the car. And so we come to find out that this energy around which the brain organizes itself is the feature that is regulating who we are and that we are constantly learning to regulate. And as we'll talk about in a little while, there are different ways in which we talk about emotion. There's primary emotion and then there's secondary emotion. We'll get to those two things and why they're different and why they're important for us to know. But for right now, one of the most important things that, that it would be you know, for our audience to, to hear and to take in is... The question is not ever then going to be, well, are you feeling something? As if, like, there are moments when we are and moments when we're not. The question is always, what are you feeling? What is it that you're feeling at any given moment? And the reason this is important is because emotion is fueling everything that we do. In fact, the English word emotion, E-M-O-T-I-O-N, comes from the Latin word A motive, A M O T I V, this notion that everything that precedes any kind of movement, emotion is that which precedes movement of any kind, whether the movement is in my thinking or the movement is with my body, emotion is always involved. It's also equally important to say that emotion being as ubiquitous, being as present in everything that we're doing, kind of like being, you know, it's it's said that carbon, for instance, is the is the common element of all life form. In that sense, emotion is this common element in all of our processing as human beings. It's also important to say that given its prominence, it doesn't make it the most important thing in the world. It doesn't make it the most important thing for humans. And we'll talk about that later as well when we talk about the role that emotion has and, in a way, how we have actually now also placed it on a pedestal wherein which, in our culture, we kind of reduce the ultimate sense of what is real to what I feel. If I feel a certain way, then that feeling is the plumb line that tells me what is real and true about me or about the world or whatever. And we'll also, I think, if we we get the opportunity, we'll, we'll move a little bit into why empathy, because that depends a great deal on emotion, why empathy has limits and why what I feel has limits. And again, just to recognize that we don't build automobiles just to have a place to put gasoline. We build automobiles because we want to go someplace. It's just that gasoline is a huge part of how the automobile operates. But it's not true that just because it's that important that it is the most important because it still needs to be regulated. But I think what we really want our audience to learn today is the importance of emotion, what its forms are, how we pay attention to it, and how regulating it can lead us to a life of greater flourishing and how the process of being known, what our work here is all about, how the process of being known is so crucially dependent upon our paying attention to and knowing about how emotion works.
0: Okay. So, um, just a kind of rudimentary question, I guess, um, before we dive into what the forms are and, and, and that kind of thing. What, so it's important. It's not the most important. Um, does sometimes our mind control our emotions and sometimes our emotion control our mind? Or is there a set,
1: more of a set structure to that? It's a great question. We, we talk about how emotion, again, like fuel... Emotion is something that we are either regulating, if we're, if we're we regulating it or it's regulating us. So, mm-hmm. for example, uh, if I'm in the middle of a conversation with Phyllis, with my wife, and she says something, this just, literally, this just happened yesterday. This happened yesterday, where she said something. Wait, are and- you sure you want to share this, Kurt? <laughs> because I just want to make sure. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, well, that red light well, means we're know, recording.
1: Yes, I know. I know what, you know, my, my you know, Phyllis, she, she, I, I just, uh, it's so beautiful. People ask her, well, have you read Kurt's books? And she said, read his books. I live with the book. I don't need to read his books. Yes. And so I'm not thinking she's going to be listening to this podcast. So I think I can say pretty much whatever it is I want to say. <laughs> Honey, forgive me, but it's all falling on deaf ears. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Uh, So yesterday, she was trying. Like she, she showed me this little video, and um, and and the video was a bit of a joke. But I wasn't getting the video. I wasn't getting the joke. And as it turned out, you needed to have a certain. you, You need to have some information about what the video was referring to that I didn't have access to. Well, she thought that I did have access to this information that I didn't have. And so I'm, look, you know, I'm looking at the video and I'm like, I'm not getting it. And she's like a little incredulous that I'm not getting it. And she says to me, she says, you know, for a guy who's so smart, I don't really understand how it is that sometimes you just can't get these things. <laughs> okay. Now, here's the thing. My wife adores me. She really does. And I adore her. And she was just making a joke. She was yanking my chain. She was being playful. And as it turned out, she caught me on, you know, it's like she, she, she threw a pitch and she threw it high and right in, in inside and, like, hmm. I took the pitch out of the park because I, 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 I heard that and I started to feel things. Hmm. But I, unfortunately, was not paying that much attention to what I was feeling. Now, it wasn't that I wasn't aware at all, but I wasn't taking a step back and saying, oh, that kind of stung. I didn't say that. I just said nothing. And literally, five minutes later, we were talking about something else. And uh, it was she, she asked me about if I knew where she had put something. But she said, I, I can't remember. I just had it. I can't remember where I put it. And I said, "Well, for someone who's so smart, I can't imagine that you can't remember where you put that." Okay, now this is me. Like the the, the I, I this like I the audience are like, "I'm just turning this off. This guy's not worth listening to anymore." This is what I said to my wife. This isn't a marriage and therapy show. So. <laughs> well, it's obviously not because I'm not going to be helping anybody if they're listening to my right. marriage, right? So. And, and, and she looks at me and she says, you know, you're right. Sometimes it's just crazy how, like, how I can not be very, I can't remember things, even though I'm, I'm really smart. And she's like, she's rubbing it in, she's rubbing the salt in the wound because I'm now intentionally trying to hurt her. Like, I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. trying, but like, right. I was upset. I, right. I was hurting her feelings. And later I just, I said to her, like, I really screwed that up. I really screwed that up. And we went on to talk about how, like, she, you know, I mean, we, we worked it out. And she even said, like, I said, like, when you, when you were, you know, showing me this, this video, like I, I, like, I didn't get it because there was certain information, obviously. And she's explaining to me. And I said, like, the minute you got to explain the joke, right, the joke, like, dissolves, right? And so she said to me, she said, like, you know, I, I realized that I, really, I was really disappointed. I wanted to show you something that was really funny. And you didn't right. get it. And I felt like somehow I felt bad that I wasn't, you know, it, it, and, and she says so that I said something and, I, and it wasn't very nice. To you, you know, and so and she apologized, and I said, Yeah, but there's that's no excuse for what I said later about you know your memory. And uh so so we're all good, but it's a perfect example of how in a moment I felt something. When she said what she said to me, for a guy who's so smart, I felt something, and I felt it literally in my chest. And it came up into my face before you know it. Five minutes later, it's coming out of my mouth, right? Right. But I'm not pausing to be able to see, like, oh, I'm feeling something. I know what that is, and I need to just say that. I need to n- name this to tame this. I needed to say this to her. Not to say, like, why would you say that to me? But to say, like, I think I, think I, I, think I feel kind of bad. Like, somehow I'm kinda, I feel kind of stupid that I'm not getting the hmm. joke. Which would have been a way for me to regulate what I was feeling, but instead, five minutes later, it was regulating me, as it were. It had me at the end of a whip, and I was tagging her with that, mm. right? I was snapping at her. Yeah.
0: You know, it's interesting. You're ta- you're saying how you you weren't paying attention to your own emotion, right? The way right. It would have right. right. been a healthier way to handle it, but it also feels like. And, you know, stop me if I'm wrong, but it also feels like you really weren't paying attention to her emotion either, because when she delivered the line to you, she was not being really, you know, trying to get you necessarily. Not at all. Not at all. Because you were. Yeah, you were. There was something else that was happening. Uh, an embarrassment or whatever that you weren't getting the joke, and and right. then then when she said that, it just <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I've been there. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> I'm not judging here.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is exactly what yeah, happened. Yeah, it's interesting. And so and and so there's an interesting feature about this that we see that emotion is this. You know, we 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 said on an, on an earlier podcast episode that the mind is this embodied and relational process that emerges from within and between brains. And so that emotional exchange that took over my brain and my mouth, mm-hmm. that emotion now it's going across the room and affecting her as well. And so we see that emotion isn't just a thing that, you know, you have over there in your silo and I have mine over here in my silo. No, it's being exchanged between the two of us, and my emotional right. state, if I'm not regulating that very well, that's going to permeate and touch the lives of other people. As, as, my, as my colleague Courtney likes to say, emotion is contagious, and the way that I'm either regulating or not regulating these emotional states within me is going to have the impact of like like moving out, rippling out, and touching and activating the emotion in other people around me. And so one of the most important things for us to recognize, again, is like an automobile th- whose, whose engine is not being well-regulated. If I'm just driving down, a, you know, a street that's 25 miles an hour, but I'm driving at 50, there's all kinds of dangerous stuff that can happen in that space because I'm not regulating that fuel very well. And, you know, be, you know I, I think about, you know kind of where we are in our in our current situation our current setting socially in our in our culture all the different layers that we talk about politics and race and ec- and ec- economics and the pandemic and so forth um from a neuroscience standpoint and even from a behavioral standpoint we would say that you know one of our fundamental challenges is that i as an individual am not regulating my own emotional state very well not regulating that very well And as we'll also learn later in our podcast, that in order for me to know how to regulate that, that is not just a thing that I just come out of the womb knowing how to do. I have to be taught how to do that. And I learn how to regulate my emotion most effectively through a process that we call co-regulation that begins the moment that I'm born and over the course of my lifetime, My parents, hopefully, are teaching me how to regulate my emotion by being my co-regulators. And they're not doing this like I learn how to do multiplication table when I'm in third grade. It's not a matter of somebody just shows me, like writes down emotions on a board and says, Kurt, here's what you do with anger and here's what you do with sadness and so forth. As much as it begins with people... And they're nonverbal cues when when we're taking care of our infants, when our infants are crying and we comfort them, for instance. That's our teaching them how to emotionally regulate because they're going to learn how to co-regulate with us. But we'll get to that in just a moment. But for now, I think it's really important for us to know that emotion really is important. It is not the most important thing. It is important for us to learn to regulate it because if we're not, it's going to regulate us, meaning it's going to control us, it's going to be driving us in some way, shape, or form. And that a lot of life is most effectively lived through the co-regulation of emotion between me and someone else. If I'm able to actually say to Phyllis yesterday, instead of doing what I did, instead I might have said, gosh, uh, I think I felt a little bad when you said that. I'm actually trying to talk about what I'm feeling. I'm not trying to accuse her of anything. I'm really just talking about what I'm feeling. Then she's able to say, "Oh gosh, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. I, I'm, I'm sorry. This is, the, you know, this is this is what I was feeling, and so forth." And we have a very different kind of exchange than the one that we had. And you can see that's a that's a minor rupture that takes place in you know homes every day everywhere. The challenge is that those kinds of ruptures come because fundamentally I've not learned to regulate my emotion in that moment. And if I practice not regulating those emotions, then I get to the point where the results of the ruptures that come because of that dysregulation can be far greater than the one that Phyllis and I experienced yesterday.
0: Listen, I'll give you the, uh, j- just a, a few miles from my house about t- a week ago. There was an incident of road rage where uh, one guy cut somebody off unintentionally, but that person got so angry, chased him down, hit his car, knocked him off the road. The guy looks in his rearview mirror and he sees the guy coming out of his car with a rifle. That guy happens to be packing heat as well. And there's a shooting on the freeway. Oh, my God. You know, so. If we don't start regulating, oh you know, yeah. our emotions, I mean, think about uh, like that, just like the extreme, right? Of just right. just how far, how far it can go. But I have to say that it takes, like, it's not easy to be in a moment, like even the moment with you and your wife and to start, like you're feeling something, right? And so it's, I think it's going to take a lot of practice to start saying, okay, what am I feeling and how can I talk about what I'm feeling instead of attacking back or, you know, right. whatever else?
1: Right, right. right. Well, this, this kind of takes us, I think, right to um, some of what, we were, what I mentioned earlier. If, uh, if, if it's okay for us to go there, I mean, to talk now about yeah. this, this difference between primary and secondary emotion and the whole notion of how we learn to regulate our emotion through this process that we call co-regulation. Just to rewind the tape a little bit, we remember in an earlier episode where we talked about how the brain operates bottom to top and right to left in the sense that first we sense things in our bodies and we sent, all those sensations run through our uh, you know, our neurological system to our spinal cord and they run up the spinal cord to the base of our brain, the brain stem. And from there, things tend to run toward the right side of our brain where the internal workings of the right side of our brain, particularly in a part of the brain called the insula, gives us a sense, this internal map of the body. And from there, it processes more in the right side of the brain what I'm sensing and imaging and feeling. And then it sends it across the corpus callosum, that strip of tissue that connects the right and the left hemispheres of the brain, sends it to the left side of the brain, wherein, in general, that left side then starts to give us language. It starts to help us make sense of what we're sensing. First we sense, and then we make sense of what we sense. Bottom to top, right to left. Why is that important when it comes to emotion? When babies are born their entire connection to the world is largely through touch. Yes, they do take in their mother's and father's voices. They begin to conjugate their gaze. They begin to see clearly and so forth. But the primary way that they are interfacing with the world is through the physical touch of their skin and of their bodies. They're feeling things. When they are when they are distressed, they're distressed usually because They are sleepy, hungry, because they are uh, uncomfortable, they're cold. And the way we respond to newborns is we pick them up. We don't say, hey, what do you need? They're not going to tell us anything. No, we, we pick them up. And already, we are helping them begin to learn that when you are in distress... You express your distress and someone comes to comfort you. Someone comes to regulate this distressing emotion that you have. That emotion is expressed and experienced through your physicality because I'm hungry, I'm distressed, I'm, I'm tired, I'm cold. But my emotion is being co-regulated by someone else and they comfort me, they feed me, they clothe me, they change me and I become comfortable and as I age, I begin to expand both my experience of life because now I become more mobile and at some point I find words and I begin to experience all kinds of things that are not just those basic things of being cold or tired or hungry or I have a, you know, a wet diaper. I begin to have other things that I'm sensing. I become a toddler and I want something. And I want to have it right now. And if you have it, then it's mine. And if I have it, then it's mine. And if I think that I want it, it's mine. And I'm upset when you set a limit. And now I'm upset for a different reason. I'm not cold. I'm not hungry. But there's this thing that I want. I can't have that. And so you, if you're, if you're parenting well, you might be able to be with me. And you might talk in words that I can understand. Still setting a limit... But speaking in a tone, for instance, that is not angry or harsh, but might still be, fr- it's gentle, but it's firm, and that you pick me up and you say, let's talk about this, or you may not have that. You may have water or you may have milk in your red or your blue cup, but you're not going to have juice. And I need you to help me learn how to regulate those things that I'm feeling. And so, in this way of parenting, the parent's presence helps the child learn how to experience feelings while learning how to regulate them. That I I have to learn that I can feel things, even things that are distressing. And I can learn that that distressing emotional state can be tolerated because someone eventually, by the time I'm four or five, maybe even younger, my parent might say, you look like you're feeling angry. You look like you're feeling sad. You look like you're feeling really pleased. And my parents actually start to give me words that represent what I'm sensing in my body. And if they're really attuned, my parents might even begin to ask me as I grow older, where do you sense your anger? Like you look angry. Like I I see it in your face. I see it in your clenched fists. You're really angry. Can you tell me about that? Where... And then my parents are helping me put words to what my body is sensing and what I'm feeling. And as we like to say, the more of my entire mind that is involved in the regulation of emotion, the more effectively that emotion is regulated. If the emotion isn't just confined to my body, but now I can put words to it, and i can talk with you about being angry you might say to me oh my goodness i get that i understand it makes sense to me that you're angry or that you're sad and i realize that the sadness is something that is received in the room my parents say yeah it's okay to be sad it's okay to be angry now you can't you know you can't hit dad with the, the toy hammer we don't hit people we don't say for instance we don't say i hate you like, there are certain things that you're you're not allowed... Like, that's not a helpful way to regulate your anger. You can say, I'm really angry. Yep, I get that. But we would say there are certain things that we put restrictions on that are not helpful in our regulating that emotion. Right. But the biggest thing that we're learning here is that if I have parents that are attuned, they are actually teaching me that emotion is important and how to regulate it, such that by the time I become an adolescent and then an adult, I've learned, and especially if my parents are like really on top of it and they start to talk with me about the way that they're parenting, I learned that in order for me to regulate my emotion, in order for me to allow emotion to do its good work within me so that I can actually benefit from it, I need the help of other people to help me regulate that sometimes. And that practice of co-regulation that sees me through the early years of life then teaches me how I can learn to regulate it on my own eventually. When I have good teachers showing me how to co-regulate, I can then know what it means to talk about my feelings on my own when when I'm in some other setting. So much of what's hard for us is that we don't have much practice, A, welcoming emotion to the room so that we can then become familiar with it, so that we can then also learn how to regulate it properly. There is a way of thinking about the experience of emotional life um, that we will get to eventually on another episode when we talk about the work of Stephen Porges and this notion of the polyvagal theory. And in this notion, he talks about This idea of a window of tolerance, that part of the mission of what it means for us to grow up and flourish as humans is to widen our window of tolerance. And what are we tolerating? We're learning how to tolerate a range of emotional experience. This entire range of anger to joy, sadness, grief, longing, and everything in between is a range of emotion that like when I'm little, I can't tolerate very much at all which is why when I'm two and I'm upset, I fall down in safe way and have a tantrum. We hope that when I'm 22, I'm not doing the same thing. Then they would be calling other people, not my mother. They'd be calling other people for that. Right. But here, we're really talking about, as Porges talks about, widening the window of tolerance. We are expanding our capacity to tolerate a range of different things such that when we do feel them, we can regulate them by expressing them in proper ways and not necessarily the way that I did with my wife yesterday.
0: So you started off this section where you you were you were going to talk about the primary and the secondary, um, uh, and we got into the the co-regulation, um, which makes me just really pray that I was. A good parent. <laughs> and I'm and am still um yeah. you know, it's uh, just just learning those skills you right. know, all the time still right. and trying to have those kind of conversations with my kids and
1: right. Yeah. Well, I mean it, it extends in adulthood and we'll we'll talk about primary and secondary uh, emotion here in just a moment. But I mean like I I mean Pepper, I, I I love kind of again, one of the reasons why I'm just so thrilled that you and I are doing this together is that we have a relationship. That uh, in which the very things that we're talking about are things that I can refer to. So I, I, I think of the, uh, you know, I think of the multiple conversations that we've had in the time that we've known each other, in which everything from you know gut busting humor to uh, grief and anger and sadness and the things the number of times that I have talked with you in ways in which uh you know you've just received me and things that are bouncing around in the back of my head that if I don't name them to you in those moments like I'm not going to be okay Mm. and you're hearing me and not leaving the room, uh, not only does it allow me to name what I'm feeling, it changes what I'm feeling. Because where I have a certain shame, for instance, and you know there've been a you know, any number of things that we've talked about in the course of our uh, relationship, where I, I've like I've come to you with a thing about which I'm like just terribly ashamed something that, you know, that I'm thinking or something that I've experienced. And that's an emotion that, like, I'm, I'm not, like, to contain that, to regulate that on my own is too much. And to put that on the table in front of you and for you not to leave the room, it's not like, oh, now I still have my shame and you're just aware of it. But the very nature of it is exp- I, like I experience that completely differently because my f- feeling felt by you means the very nature of what I'm feeling is transformed. Shame does not get to take up residence in an isolated pocket in the back of my brain any longer because you are hearing it and you're receiving that with compassion and empathy, uh, allows that to be different. And that's, I mean, that's a primary example of co-regulation even as an adult that I've just been so grateful for. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So we continue by being known to co-regulate. And that's,
1: you know, that's growth. And that's... Right. 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 So briefly, a, a little bit about this difference between primary and secondary emotion. Right. You know, when we typically think about emotion, we think about it in terms of these particular feelings that we have, which makes sense. I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm hurt, I'm lonely. And that's all true, but as far as the body is concerned, long before I become aware that I'm feeling a certain thing, I feel angry, uh, my body senses something. And these primary ways in which we experience shame or guilt or anger or joy, these primary ways are experienced in my body and activate parts of the brain that I typically don't have conscious access to. So I might experience my anxiety before I even would call it anxiety, like I notice that my heart rate is up. Or I might notice something in my gut And these are what we call primary in that they come to me through all kinds of things. So I might, uh, let's let's say that I grew up in a house where whenever my dad gets angry, he speaks in a certain tone, and I notice, I, I mean, I don't notice, but if I were paying attention, I would be aware that my entire, like, torso begins to get tense. But, you know, like... I'm two or three years old. I don't know this. And this is what happens throughout my entire childhood and growing up into adolescence. I don't know that that's what happens. I, I get tense. And then it goes up my entire spine and I get, and, and by the time I'm like 18, I'm, I'm, I've I'm developed tension headaches. And I don't, I just like, well, I, well what's the problem? I, I have headaches. That's all I know. I don't, Translate this into, this is fear, or this is anger. I'm just having headaches. This is my body. This is primary emotional states that are moving, that don't necessarily come to the f- part of my, my prefrontal cortex that tell me, oh, Kurt, you're angry, or you're afraid. But secondary, the primary emotion eventually then emerges into what we call secondary emotion, or this universal emotion. And by universal, we mean that secondary emotion, what we call these discrete blocks of emotional content. I feel angry. I feel sad. So our audience will all agree that like, if I feel sad, that feels different than when I feel happy. Those are different states of mind. And we can say like, yeah, that. those are different. Those states of joy or sadness Those are universal across cultures, across sexes, across time. I may not get to anger in the same way that you do, but you and I both know what anger is, what it feels like. By the time it becomes this secondary emotion. You and I may not both experience our shame through the same way, but we both know what it's like when it gets there eventually. And so why is is this important? It's because we can have very different primary emotional experiences. By the time we experience it secondarily, by the time I know that I'm feeling anger, I can resonate with you who says, like, I feel anger as well. Our stories may be different. How our bodies processed that anger may be different. You might not have tension headaches like I do. But by the time I'm able to say, gosh, as it turns out, I'm pretty angry about the way my dad behaved growing up in my house. Or I'm pretty, I, 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 feel, I feel this sense of feeling abandoned because I had a mom who, you know, in her depression just went to bed and didn't come out of her bedroom for days. Or I was sexually mistreated as a kid, you know, when I was, you know, between the ages of six to nine from an uncle and I never told anybody and now I'm in my mid thirties and I'm finally coming out with it and I, all these things that I've, that I've felt but have never allowed myself to feel in this secondary way that's much more conscious. Why is any of that important? First of all, you know, we live in a culture, as I said, in which we think that emotion is this compartmentalized thing that we can either feel or not feel, when we begin to recognize that emotion is involved in everything, then we can become more curious about the question, what are you feeling? What are you feeling? And the reason that question is so crucially important in the work that we do in psychotherapy and in the work that I would suggest that we do in friendship, this isn't just a clinical thing. This is what it means to be human. That if we're willing to ask a person a question, what do you feel? We're inviting people to get to some of the fundamentals of what their experience of being known are all about. We have developed and run these confessional communities in our practice. And they're just, they're a sheer joy to be part of. And people are just working their tails off at becoming increasingly more real as human beings telling their stories more truly. And, of course, this is a question that I ask in my individual therapy with patients as well, but we also ask this question repeatedly over and over and over again in these groups. What are you feeling? Sam, what are you feeling? And, you know, about seven times out of ten, especially when we're in running men's groups, about seven times out of ten, I ask Sam or Phil what he's feeling, and he says, well, I think that, and he's about to tell me what he thinks, Or he says, well, I feel that George is really making a mistake. And, you know, and we have to coach people. I'm not asking you what you think. I'm not asking what you feel that you think. There are even people who, when they talk about feelings, think they're expressing what they're feeling, but they're really talking about what they think about what they feel. Because we are so not practiced at identifying what I feel. And so we will pause them repeatedly, pause them, and say, what are you feeling? Or reframe it and say, what's the emotion that is emerging for you right now? Didn't you also say in a prior podcast that one of the
0: practices that you did, you do in that group is when a person tells their story, the other people in the room talk about what that makes them feel, and then that opens up the person's eyes to some things that they may not. Yeah, talk about that. I mean, I know we talked about it previously, but tie
1: it in here. Right. So this notion that when you ask a person what they feel and they have a hard time doing that, but when they tell their story, they may not be aware that they're actually feeling the very things that other people start to pick up on. I said earlier that my colleague Courtney likes to talk about feelings being contagious. I'll never forget this one story where a guy was telling his story and another guy started to just say like, Man, I hear your story and I am just exhausted. I'm just exhausted. And the storyteller said, you know, I don't think I've ever in my life been willing to admit how exhausted I am. And I don't think that if you if if you hadn't said that, I don't think I would have had any idea that tired is the thing that I walk around on the earth feeling all day every day. I'm tired in the middle of my life. And that's an example of how we move, by by naming what our emotion is, we move from the primary emotional states to the secondary emotional states. Because a lot of times we'll say, well, I feel, I'm not really sure what I feel, but I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm feeling something. And we ask, where do you feel it in your body? And they might point that, like, well, I feel it over my heart, or I feel it in my abdomen, or I feel it in my face. My, I guess it's in my jaw, because I'm just I'm just so tense. Or someone else might say, like, like, man, I, I don't know. Well, someone else might say, well, like, just look at how you're sitting. You're sitting there with your arms crossed and your legs crossed like you don't like, want to be within 20 yards of us. And then a whole world begins to open to them because they move from this primary felt sense of where it is in their body to being able to give a word to it and sometimes they might not be able to give a word, but in these communities, somebody else can. Somebody else can say, well, you know, when you were talking about that trip that you took across the country with your dad when you were 17, which just the two of you went for this, you know, two-week trip, just the two of you. And then, you know, two years later, he was dead from a heart attack. I just, I just... uh I'm just remembering this, this one story being told. Like I, I just remember the... Uh, I, I, I heard that and I thought, man, what a loss at 19 to lose your dad after having had this trip when you were 17 in which you were just... And you know, it's something to watch a 45-year-old guy just lose his crap right there because somebody else names, grief that he's been carrying for 25 years, but that he's not allowed himself to sense or name or experience. Because when his dad dies, he's got to drop out of college and he's got to work and work and work in order to make sure that his family of origin is okay, before he can eventually get back to college and all the work that is involved in doing that means that his grief is pushed underground. And it's pushed underground until somebody else comes to mine it. And that's co-regulation. And that's not just a matter of like, I'm upset and you help me calm down my being upset. That's a matter of I'm not even aware that I'm feeling anything until somebody else puts their finger on it. And, you know, this is... I mean, this is the gospel. All of you who are weary and heavy laden. And Jesus isn't just expressing this out into the ether into some nameless crowd he's looking people in the eye and he's naming for people their weariness and their burden that they don't have like look i get i get i don't have time to be talking about my burden or my weariness because i'm just too busy trying to get like enough bread on my table so that my kids can survive another day I don't get time to pay attention to this. And Jesus names this in the same way that in these confessional communities, somebody names somebody's grief. Somebody names somebody's joy, right? I mean, one of the things that in this particular story that was true was that for this 45-year-old guy, he wasn't actually even able to allow himself to, he wouldn't let himself remember fully the joy of that two-week trip across the country that he and his dad took. Because to touch that rail brought him too close to his grief. And if you get swallowed by your grief, then you, you know, you're not going to be able to do the hard work that you have to do to make sure that everybody survives in your family. And you miss the joy. You do. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so back to you know Porges and this notion of, ex- of this window of tolerance. Like, if I can't tolerate my grief because I don't have somebody there that will enable me to co-regulate that, then I also don't get the benefit of being able to remember and remain immersed in my joy that was part of that same relationship. And so we find that we can think that there's just lots of emotions. We, we talk about afflicting emotion and how difficult it is for us to, uh, you know, experience and pay attention to and talk about and be with the emotion that is more painful but those emotions are often tied themselves to other experiences that equally have as much joy that's related to them and so if I cut off certain emotion I might also find myself cutting off vast swaths of other emotion as well
0: Yeah.
1: But it's in these communities where co-regulation takes place, where I don't just learn that somebody can help me manage the stuff that's difficult, but somebody can actually even access things that are difficult, that heretofore I've worked really hard to keep pushed away. You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, you're, there was a time, and maybe there's, this still is true, is that when... Uh, Uh, Petroleum companies advertise their gasoline as being clean burning fuel, you know, gasoline that, you know, cleans your car engine while you run it. I mean, I'm not quite sure that's even true, but, you know, they they say it is. And there is a sense, I remember, you know, in in cars that would, you know, have carburetors and those kinds, of, we, we would talk about dirty fuel, right? We would talk about the fact that you could get fuel, you could get stuff in the fuel that would make it, you know, hard on the engine, and, you know, a part of what we like to say about emotion is that emotion in and of itself is neither good nor bad. emotional it's just, it's gasoline, but we, but we want to regulate it well, right? We want to make sure that we can name these things. To tell our stories, as we've said, to tell our stories more truly means that I want to tell all of my story. I want to name all of the emotional states that are banging around inside my head. Because in so doing, I want to be able to name the things that I'm paying attention to. One of the things that we, we, we and we'll get to this eventually when we talk about attention and consciousness is one of the domains of integration of the mind, we pay attention to things that are emotionally salient. What do you mean by that? One of the primary roles that emotion plays is that it is the thing that draws our attention to anything in the world. Right. I pay attention to things that capture my emotional states. I don't just pay attention to something that's interesting because it's interesting. It's interesting because I'm emotionally drawn to it. I'm attracted to it, I feel something. There is this surge of primary emotion. Even if I don't at first know that, oh, uh, intrigue or joy, is really what's emerging for me. I'm just drawn to this. If someone were to walk into the room with a handgun, that wouldn't be pleasant, but my emotion would be immediately drawn to it because, I mean, my attention would be drawn to it because my it's, it's emotionally salient. It's emotionally significant to me. I'm afraid, and so I pay attention to that. But equally well, if I were to walk into the room and there are 30 people there ready to celebrate my birthday, I would pay attention to that as well because there is a surge of emotion that's taking place within me. And those things that are emotionally salient, we pay attention to. And what we pay attention to, we remember. And what we remember becomes our anticipated future. And so we come to discover that emotion is crucial because it drives attention, which drives memory, which drives our anticipated future. And as we, over the course of our uh, podcast series, talk about, well, what happens when we experience trauma, what happens when we experience uh, healing, all those kinds of things, we'll get a greater and greater sense of the importance of emotion and being curious about this. What are we asking the question? What do we feel? What do we feel? What do we feel for the purpose of them asking the question? Eventually, what do we want to do in response to this? So much of my actions, like what happened with Phyllis and me yesterday, they right. were just my primal, like, you know, lower brain grabbing the gear shift and the steering wheel, grabbing my mouth, And saying, well, you know, like, (laughs) you you know, and just being a smart aleck, you know, with her, right? The Jews were aware that emotion was so important that they commit an entire book of the Bible, poetry and song, the Psalms, is a 150 poem collection of emotional regulation. And, you know, you figure, well, gosh, how many emotions are there? There are about, you know, seven or eight primary emotions of these, these primary things that we, that we start to sense. Anger, you know, rage, a range of different things that we, that we feel. Like, why do we need 150 psalms? Why can't we just, like, have one psalm? Or, like, maybe two or three? And it can express everything we need. Like, why is it? Is it no. Like, we need that much because we need the opportunity to express so much of who we are. Within that range. And the other thing that is really important to recognize is that these Psalms were written, collected, and produced for the purpose of being read and sung in the congregation, in the community. You know, nowadays, we in our private Bible studies, we we read these individually, all of which is really important and necessary and helpful, but that's not how they were originally designed. They were designed for us to be sung, read, memorized together in public. We would look at each other while we were saying these psalms, while we were expressing all this agony and joy. Without them being neuroscientists, they were doing the very things that our minds desperately need for us to be able to do, because I'm not just anticipating and expressing emotion, I'm doing it in the context of community that enables me to regulate it most effectively. And so, you know, for our audience today, I'm really excited for us to be able to identify what we feel and then ask the question, not just what are you feeling, not just where are you feeling it in your body but also asking the question, who are the people in your life with whom and by whom you are able to co-regulate your emotion in such a way that you can pay attention to it in meaningful healing ways and so therefore make concrete choices in your life in response to it such that emotion can be seen to be the fuel that is moving you to a life of flourishing no matter what the emotion is and to recognize that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is intending to use every and all emotion as part of the recipe in transforming our minds and making us to be more like our older brother, the King, Jesus. And as we approach it in that way, recognizing that it's a crucial element of what it means for us to be known, we find that flourishing is far more... uh, able to be approached than we ever thought
0: I think that's a great way to wrap it up Kurt I appreciate you being someone who co-regulates with me mm. and uh, it's, it's great being with you here today um, obviously this emotion is a very big subject and we will be um, revisiting it again you know because as you say it's uh, intertwined with everything right um and uh it is important but it's not the most important
1: right right yeah well said thank you kurt this has been great thanks pep next time next time this podcast is produced by kurt thompson pepper sweeney and myself amy Chella. Audio production and music is provided by Noah Needleman. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on our website, beingknownpodcast.com, or you can find us on social media at beingknownpod. Be well and be known.